Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Brilliant. Okay. And hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of The Socialist Seance. This is our ongoing series of interviews with people who are involved on the ground in struggles across the wider spooky left. Uh, And today, after we've inscribed the correct sigils upon our socialist Ouija board, (laughs) we have uh, Max Alvarez from the podcast Working People is with us. Hey, how's it going, guys? I was I was like shopping at a, a supermarket, then suddenly like my body disapparated and I appeared here. So I don't know what you did. <laughs> it's it's good to know that we have this kind of like extreme occult power, and we're using it to like you know chat with other podcasters. <laughs> um, that is that's the praxis that Mark's intended. Absolutely, that's that's the that's the fourth volume of Capital. <laughs> demonology the demonology of podcasting that's what it's all about uh, um so uh max thank you so much for swinging by the horror vanguard crypts um for people who maybe have not come across you and your work do you want to maybe just give a quick little intro to to the show to what you do to who you are yeah sure um it's funny because um you know john john you know this because you you've been on working people but um you know, I, I I ask every guest whether it's you know a plumber in St. Louis or a telemarketer in Vegas or you know like Abdul El Syed uh, here in Michigan. Like I always ask everyone to introduce themselves so that they can um you know they can frame how we we kind of are introduced to them. And the ones who always get freaked out the most about that are other podcasters. <laughs> like <laughs> like they, they just don't know what to do with themselves. So I've had to kind of try to work on it myself, but um. Yeah, so so um, like you guys said, um, I am the uh, host of Working People, um, which is a podcast where I interview workers from around the country, from all walks of life, working all sorts of, of jobs. Um, we just wrapped up our second season. Um, as I as I um, kind of move on to a a new job but we will be back um in a couple months and there will still be um some great bonus episodes coming out on patreon um if you if y'all want to check those out but um yeah i mean before that before i got the uh the podcast going um you know i was doing a lot of kind of writing in the the kind of like left publishing world i had a column at the baffler um for a couple years um, you know, I've also written for like current affairs, truth out, um, a lot of, a lot of other places. Um, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm also finishing up, uh, grad school, um, getting PhDs in, in history and comparative literature. Um, and, uh, even with those two PhDs still couldn't get a job in, in higher ed. <laughs> Uh, that's great. That's th- that you that you've managed to kind of encapsulate everything that I was hoping you would bring into it. <laughs> uh, and I have to admit that I I totally borrowed that idea of like getting every guest on Horror Vanguard to introduce themselves from working people. 
<laughs> that's that's Hell yeah. exactly that's exactly where it came from, and for exactly those reasons that that I always think it's great that the, the the people who are kind enough to give up their time to come on our show get to frame how we think about them. Um, so let's let's kind of jump in and maybe flesh out a little bit more of those things that you touched on. Which so so first of all, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about. What got you started as someone who is on the left, someone who's involved in on-the-ground kind of political work? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it's really, you know, it's all it's all connected um, to the kind of same reasons that that I started the podcast and that I started doing public writing, and um, you know, it, it, it's yeah, it's kind of the story of of the show of working people itself because you know the the very first episode of Working People was actually um, a long interview with my dad, um, who is a you know Mexican immigrant, grew up dirt poor in in Tijuana, um, and was you know kind of separated from his siblings when you know his mom died when he was a kid, and and his dad had abandoned them, so they were they were all alone, and and they you know one by one kind of made it to the to the states, and we talk about that. We talked about kind of getting citizenship, meeting my mom, um, ended up working in real estate, and and we talked about losing everything um, in the recession, and and kind of how much that hurt our family and hurt my dad especially as as someone who I think for for the years after the recession after the recession was really um punishing himself for having had and lost this this infinite thing of the of the american dream and and he wouldn't talk to anyone about it no matter how much we tried to get him to and and we kind of all started following suit you know we were all just kind of um trying to kind of get by uh, as best we could without really talking about what we were going through and what so many people around the country and around the world were going through, right? It was just kind of this massive, like, specter, you know, like that, that, that we, we didn't want to look, um, straight at a bit for fear that, that, you know, we would fall into some kind of bottomless abyss. And, and, you know, we all kind of started to lose each other in that, in that period. And that was the same period that, you know, after, after finishing my my master's um, in the UK and in, in Russian literature, uh, it, shockingly, I came back home to California to find that you know during a recession with two degrees in Russian literature, uh, I was not very valuable and, and could not find a job. <laughs> and um, you know, and and this was when you know, like I said, like you know, everything was going to shit for our family, and you know, I was just trying to find. Uh, something to to help out, um, something to to kind of you know get us through the week, and you know after months and months, the only kinds of jobs that that I was able to get were you know at these blue collar temp agencies um, in town that you know basically would just ship me and a couple other Latino men to like whatever you know factory or warehouse needed a few extra bodies that day, and you know I think. I, I I go into that kind of detail because that was really I think the radicalizing um period for for me and for you know my family as as well. I mean I'm I'm definitely the most um left in the family, but I think that you know that that whole experience really um 
brought us much closer to class consciousness than than we um had been in a long time especially for you know my dad you know coming from where he came from and my mom's family growing up in Compton right it was like we had we had almost kind of or they had almost managed to forget um that class consciousness for like two decades and then in one fell swoop everything was gone and and kind of the hard you know um hard sharp edge of the reel was was kind of right there cutting cutting all of us and um so it was it was through that that I think I really started to um kind of think really long and hard um you know again seeing what my family was going through experiencing it myself and experiencing how I mean the the you know life in late capitalism is alienating enough on its own but you know when you lose everything and you suddenly realize that the connections to people that you thought you had are not nearly as strong as as you thought they were and no one's reaching out to you or you don't want to reach out to them because you feel embarrassed and depressed i mean just that it was just like you wake up one day and feel it's like a dream right you wake up from a dream uh, like Nietzsche says, right? I, I woke in the midst of this dream only to to the realization that I myself was still dreaming. And and you kind of wake up in the middle of this desert and realize that that the the connections to people that you know you take as kind of authentic under late capitalism are really just fantasies, phantasma. And when something like this happens, you wake up in the desert and realize that you're all alone. And and it was in that kind of period and and working through that shit with with myself and with my family that I realized just how important it was for us to try to to talk to one another, try to find one another in that desert and to, you know, repair um, or build for the first time some sort of more genuine kind of human uh, connection that could withstand um, the kind of alienation and exploitation um, that we are all living through and that could kind of provide the 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 ground for us to build something different. And I mean, you know, like that's that's what I try to do with working people. That's how I approach, um, you know, organizing or talking to to just regular people. Even I mean, I wouldn't call just kind of talking to regular people necessarily organizing, but I think it has real uh, important political value. Right. Because, again, it's like once. Once we start to kind of have these conversations and once we start to open up a space for each other, like I try to do on working people, a space where, um, you know, people can can really just just feel like they are being heard and and seen and where they can, you know, really tell their life story the way that they want it to be told and to kind of remind themselves that their stories and their lives and their pain and their their struggles and their victories that these things matter that these matter way more than what kind of the mainstream media and kind of this gross political economy that we're all living in lead us to believe and i see that as kind of like a way of of um forging those sorts of bonds of solidarity without which we cannot possibly hope to to build a robust enough community, um, a robust enough movement um, to kind of withstand all the, the, the vicious monstrous forces that, that we are up against. Yeah, that's, um, that's really well put. <laughs> so one of the things um, that we were talking about in the DMS before this and, and, you know, kind of like you, you're, you're evoking this reoccurring imagery of like 
like, you know, like the, the, our buried past and this jagged reality we're coming up to face and kind of awaking to a dream to find ourselves in the desert, still dreaming. It's all very, all very gothic, all very horrific, right? And I was wondering, um, how do you connect, you know, horror to these ideas of the working class and precariousness? Well, I, I must admit I've been binging on horror vanguard, so that may have been impacted. <laughs> <laughs> that may have impacted my, my language choice. <laughs> Um, we we highly recommend uh, binging horror events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, highly highly recommend. Would would do again. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, but it's it's in listening to um, your guys' show, which I think is great. Um, and and in talking to to both of you, um, you know, off off the recordings that that I think I've started to um, try to to you know answer that question um, for myself because. Um, you know, I, I wrote this, um, this piece kind of recapping a lot of what, what I was just talking about for current affairs called, um, can the working class speak? Right. And that was, that was really like me trying to describe why I started the show and what I see the value, uh, of, of having these conversations, um, with working people, um, what I see that value as as kind of being. And, you know, when, when I was trying to kind of reflect on our family's experience um during this kind of decade um during and after the recession right i mean it was uh, it was very horrific it was very much like kind of digging into some shadowy um kind of chess of my memory that that had almost been like deliberately locked or hidden and that when i tried to kind of recreate the scene of like myself sitting in the temp agency at 3:30 in the morning you know, there there were only like flashes that I could really pull back. And I think that, um, you know, there, there was a kind of constant sense of dread. There was a kind of constant feeling of, of alienation and, and kind of like uncanniness to everything. Right. Like 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 the ground could suddenly just drop out at any moment. Right. Like there was just like some giant sucking like thing that we were all trying to tiptoe around without waking up. And and that, you know, that thing would kind of um, show itself or at least remind us that it was there when we would get like, you know, a notice like, you know, taped to the front door and a red notice. Right. Or yeah. like an unpayable bill or a phone call from a number that we knew we didn't want to answer. And it just I think it it. it you know, in, in trying to kind of um, tease that out and what that kind of horrific experience um, kind of really means, I think I think one of the things that that kind of really comes to mind is just um, is, yeah, just just how much, you know, like the kind of um, fantasies that that allow us to live a, you know, ostensibly normal, comfortable existence in this kind of capitalist hellscape right all the um things that that allow us to kind of just get by day to day without falling into deep pits of despair right all of that is undergirded by this kind of giant um vicious you know force of of you know you can call it capitalism you can call it whatever you want but it is this kind of thing that we know has the power to to erase us, right? To 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 swallow us from from head to toe to soul, and and I think we're all living in constant fear of that, right? And and um, you know, I think that that permeates all of the ways that that we relate to each other, and that we think about 
even ourselves in relationship to one another, right? All the ways that we end up kind of trying to define, um, you know, what friendship means, what what camaraderie and solidarity is, what our relationship to our coworkers and our and our customers and even our family members and our friends like. I mean, it all of that is none of it is is kind of. Um, you know, far enough away from this kind of giant sucking thing that that it doesn't have some sort of impact on it. And I think that it's really important to kind of, you know, ask um, all of us to to face it right to to and, and not to face it alone. Right. But to provide each other kind of the the care and attention and and non judgment right to 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 take that um, task and, and face it head on. You know, one of the things that I wrote in the current affairs piece was that, you know, I, I didn't realize it until later, but I think that my dad in coming on the show, right, which was, which was really, you know, it was not what I expected because my dad is not, you know, a super talkative guy, or at least he really wasn't kind of before that. Uh, I mean, he's a he's a loving guy. He's great. But the fact that we filled up like an hour and a half co of conversation of just him talking about his life, that was that had never happened in the whole time that I'd known him. Right. And I think that, you know, in as much as he had been punishing himself for for all these years for kind of what he saw as like his great failure to provide for us. Right. I think that that in that moment of of sharing his story and sharing it so openly and honestly, like he was he was doing the one thing that he thought he could do for us, the rest of us, his children, his family, his and his fellow workers. Right. Was to show us what it looked like to face head on that that monstrous thing lurking behind kind of the the sheen of normal reality in 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 late capitalism. Right. He he looked at head on and he talked about what it was like to lose uh, the house that I grew up in, what it felt like to not have people um, that he thought were his friends reach out to him. And that was incredibly hard for him. I know it was. And and I think what I've seen in so many of the other um, conversations that I've had with workers is that if you give if you give your fellow workers that chance to just kind of, you know, walk into that wilderness and and you know you you show that you're listening and that you're supportive and that you know they will have something to fall back on if it gets too scary or too harsh then they will they will walk in there and 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 it will be i think really healing for for all of us right i mean some people have have told stories on the show that they tell me that they haven't talked about in decades even to their family and I'm like, why, why would you tell me whom you've never met in real life, you know, this kind of just this painful, traumatic memory from your past? And and I, I, I mean, I honestly, it does not have anything to do with me. I really think it has everything to do with the fact that we just don't give each other that kind of room and that kind of attention, right, to 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 venture into, you know, the the dark wilds of our past and of our kind of everyday lived reality and and. Once we do, we realize how important it is and how how much we need it and how how, you know, horrific it is to live every day without it. Yeah, 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 I really I can't agree more with all of that. I definitely think that our, our condition is horrific. This is a nightmare. And, and a lot of the language of horror allows us to confront that in ways that 
it's incredibly difficult to confront if we're just using, especially just the language of, of capitalism and the language it's suggested we use. Or, and, or, and even, or, even or still with the dry language of sort of like economics, that's, that's also yes, the yes. other option, isn't it? Yeah. But like we say on the show, like horror is a diagnosis. Like it's, it's a tool that allows us to articulate a kind of truth of, of what we're going through. And I, there's a great quote by the, um, Italian uh, Marxist uh, Franco Berardi, who says that we must look the monsters directly in the eye. And I, I love that because, one, it's like, that's a mood right there. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's a big mood. That's a big fucking mood. But what's really important about it is that it says we, we, we must look the monsters in the eye. And it's like those, those, those monsters, those kind of fears, those pressures that I really love the way that you put that, of like, people sort of tiptoeing through their existence, desperate not to get kind of sucked down into that void that sort of exists just, just out of eyeline is not, is not something that we need to go through by ourselves. It's something that, that we can do. You know, we can turn our gaze onto, onto the monster that is uh, contemporary neoliberal capitalism, even if that isn't something that I can do by myself. Um, so, one of the questions that we wanted to sort of get into is maybe who were some of the, the, the writers and, and thinkers and academics that you draw from that you find useful and kind of inspiring for the work that you're trying to do through working people and everything else that you do? Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a hell of a question because, um, you know, I think, I think um, and it's an important one, right? Because this is... I think this is this is why I like your guys' show so much, and why I respond to shows like um, like the Nostalgia Trap, um, and and I try to kind of work it into my show, right? Where I I try to ask people like, yeah, what are what are the you know things and experiences and people with which you know you have come into contact that have that have shaped you, right? Because I think it's a it's the the premise of the question is that who we are is not kind of written into us from birth, right? It is not kind of hardwired into our boards, but who we are is, is a constant process of, of um, kind of dialogue with the world around us and with the people that we're with. And, you know, when I, when I try to think back to like the, the things that have made me who I am and the thinkers um, who have kind of allowed me to, to think what I think, um, you know, in, in this regard, I guess, you know, sticking to um, to kind of what we're talking about here, I think that there are probably like kind of two camps right there. There's in terms of like kind of helping me understand um, the the horrific nature of, of our lived reality, um, even under kind of like this this placid surface of, of normalcy. Right. I mean, I, I, I think that the the writers who really kind of helped me um, see that and see it at work and to see the kind of, um, you know, just kind of um, delicate erosion of humanity that that happens when you live in that sort of low key um, hell is, you know, people like Nikolai Gogol, um, who I wrote my, oh, yeah. yeah, I wrote my, my master's and my BA on Gogol. I love Gogol, um, dearly. And, you know, I think that, that he was just, um, you know, kind of unmatched, um, in, in his time and place, uh, when it came to, um, 
trying to to show um kind of what the human spirit looks like um if kind of like left to to, to fester right in this kind of um yeah like just low-key horrifying reality whether that was in kind of the ukrainian countryside or in the the streets of, of saint petersburg but he also he tried to kind of give these little hints he tried to give little hints that something was deeply wrong right because the thing is is that in these worlds there is no conscious there is no conscience right there is no character there most of the time in gogol who is saying what the hell is going on why is everyone doing this like this it doesn't have to be this way right and and you get sucked in there and and even you start to lose your capacity to do that because it's also really funny the way that gogol writes about it right i mean and and you know there's there is a thin line between you know like the comedic nature of our horrific reality and the horrific you know like uh terrifying nature of it and i think that 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 really that line you know is um is pointed to by gogol just in these very minute details um in in something a a, a kind of look that that a character has right or a, a scratch on on a um on a portrait of like you know like someone's family member like just these little cracks in the surface of reality that that un, unnerve you in this kind of um really important um way i think if you if you let yourself kind of follow that thread and i think that that has that that has kind of really shaped the way that I um, try to think about how kind of the horrors of capitalism manifest in the most mundane uh, aspects of our daily lives, right? The things that we take for granted, but that, you know, if we had any sense of um, comparison to a world that was, was in, wasn't a nightmare, right? They would be deeply comical or deeply horrific, but we just take them as a given because we have no other options, Right. I mean, but but it's it's everywhere. Right. I mean, it's 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 in it's in people in San Francisco complaining that there are too many homeless people and that the homeless people have are shitting everywhere. And then they, you know, make the bathrooms in San Francisco only um, you can only open them with a phone app. It's like, well, where the fuck do you think they're going to you know, go take a <laughs> shit <clears throat> like right. I mean, these, but these are again, it's like it's deeply comedic, but also really dark. And it's just. But but when we're so deep within it, when we're so um, wrapped up in the kind of fabric of that nightmare, um, we lose our kind of sense to see that 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 we are, in fact, dreaming, right, that we we lose our ability to wake in the midst of that dream. Um, yeah. And I think I think people like Gogol, uh, Carson McCullers and, and writers in that vein really kind of helped me uh, kind of develop a, a way of, of seeing those sorts of things, but also. And I think most importantly, because um, I, th I think this characterizes my approach to left writing and podcasting and organizing and so on and so forth, right, is, is, is trying to find um, kind of the shreds of humanity that exist in there or to try to repair the lost humanity um, that has suffered and become calloused uh, for so long, you know, under these sorts of um, kind of brutal, mundane conditions, right? I think that's... That's that's what I I'm trying to do, you know, with working yeah. people and what I think, you know, the the most successful organizers um and who to whom I, you know, like owe uh, a lot of of my own thinking, you know, I think that they do too, right? Is that they understand that right to really bring people into a cause, to really 
to really energize people to the point where they feel like they have the ability together to change reality, to change the world that we live in, right? You have to revivify that that sort of deadened tissue of of shared humanity, right? You have to remind um, people of something that they may have never experienced, um, but that that it doesn't have to be this way, and that we, as as you know, fellow workers, as human beings, as as beings in in communion with an environment that is dying, right? That 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 we are that more than than this, right? And that there is more. There's so much more. Um, to us and to this world that we um, that capitalism wastes and that capitalism deliberately uh, wastes and that that we you know if we want to kind of really change things we need to kind of breathe life back into that tissue and I think that that will bring us closer together and and will will bring us closer to feeling like we can actually change something. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, a, a genuinely quite beautiful way of putting it, actually. Yeah, and I think that um that takes us nicely into something that um you wanted to get into. Uh, we were talking in the DMs before uh, we even started recording about kind of uh, so so the three of us are you know we're we're podcasters, we're academics, we're writers. We're like naturally kind of inclined to be very loud, <laughs> as it were. Guilty, but um, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we're all guilty as charged there. Um, but you mentioned, you know, the value of listening, the value of this work that's done behind the scenes that doesn't really get this kind of spotlight. And I think that, you know, especially with the, the, the socialist seance series that we're trying to, to put together, you know, like, like the bulk of our podcast is media criticism. And while like, like I will defend media criticism uh, any day, every day, I think that, you know, giving, giving people like a, a connection to actual on the ground work, even if it is behind the scenes and not necessarily as flashy is incredibly important. And I wonder if you wanted to jump on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I and I would I would um I I would die to hear um you know kind of how how you guys see that as well cuz you know I think I think that um you know that, that this is something that um that should be taken seriously and that often doesn't especially in Marxist circles or or certain Marxist circles, right? But that I mean, you know, you guys are tapping into um you know, as you've said on the show, right? You know, like one of the most um kind of base visceral experiences um of the human condition right and and you are connecting to people through um the media through which like you know like you know your experiences can become shared right and your analyses can become um you know populated with that sort of connection that you have to each other right and people can can listen to you and then see this movie and feel more connected to you and to others who who now see it this different way, right? I mean, there there is something. I, th I think that you know, in our discussion about uh, how we change history and whether or not um, that happens by changing kind of the you know economic relations of of production um, and the kind of material structures that undergird our society, or whether you know, like um, kind of issues of representation and and culture and sociality like how much of a role those have to play in shaping history right i think we have to take seriously again like how much of our humanity we invest in these sorts of cultural experiences through you know horror you know as a genre in in film and and um literature and so on and so forth and because i think i think that you know 
what can get lost is an appreciation for um you know how much people are activated or or not you know like through those sorts of like base uh human uh or what will what we you know believe to be our human kind of um impulses and and the things that connect us to other human beings because we feel uh similarly or we feel the same thing when we're faced with the same sorts of horrific kind of monsters and so on and so forth and so you know on on that on that um note i know that's a little uh highfalutin but but you know i what i the reason i i um kind of put it that way is that you know what i've what i've learned from so many um great organizers and uh you know just in working with people here at the University of Michigan with our our grad student union GEO um the local DSA here on Valley DSA uh the campus anti fascist network um just i mean and and you know but even even beyond the kind of campus community like i mentioned DSA there's also you know solidarity and defense the IWW right i mean there's there's a really great collection of people and organizations represented in in the Ann Arbor Ypsilanti area and and you know like what i what i think i have um found kind of most um inspiring in in the the people that i've worked with and the people that i've kind of just seen in action um here and and um and and outside of michigan right is is people who really really take seriously right the 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 ability to kind of um reach reach other people on some sort of kind of um human level not just a purely conceptual level not just what people would see as a kind of purely political level but that can bind those sorts of things to um i think the most visceral deep set desires and needs that we have as human beings the you know one of which is to not feel alone right and and that organizing you know i think that that the best sorts of um kind of organizing spaces that I've been in are ones that feel like a community, right? That, that, that have that sort of sense of, um, you belong here, right? I mean, like you, you are not alone in this and, um, and the best way to kind of deal with that is together, right? If you can, if you can tap into that sort of sense that people have, and that is, I think, slumbering, you know, like below the surface for so many of us, again, once you kind of ignite that, once you kind of, um, awaken that, People realize how much they need it and how how hard it is to live um, without it. And and you know I think the point that that I'm trying to make with with working people and I've talked to many you know organizers and workers who have like you know you know unionized their workplaces. Right. I mean I, I had a great interview with um, Drew Edmonds who is a Burgerville worker out in Portland. Right. And he. Yeah, he was part of the the push to get Burgerville workers um to unionize through the IWW and they became the first federally recognized fast food union in the country, right? And you know, he talks about how um, going to work there and you know, being assault and and trying to kind of, you know, just after weeks and months of working there, you find these kinds of little um kind of human connections in the work that you do that that remind you and your coworkers that you have more in common um and that you have more in stake at stake together than your bosses would have you realize right whether yeah, that totally. 
Yeah. I mean, like he tells, he, he mentioned that like, you know, you, you learn things like if you get burned by the fryer, put some tomato on it because it, you know, it, it helps the burn. And he's like, you know, I never would have known that, but the cook who showed me that, that made me feel closer to him. Right. I mean, like that, that little thing, that kind of shared sense of, of camaraderie and care that we need to be attentive to that shit. I think that that, that's kind of maybe the way that I would answer that question is just, um, don't don't assume that that um those things don't matter right don't assume that that um that those things don't make people feel um more willing to listen to you or more willing to work with you right if you actually show a certain uh sense of of care for who they are as human beings and for what you know uh, human beings want and deserve right we deserve dignity we deserve joy right we deserve um, passion and, and, and dignity and comfort and safety and all that, that stuff. Right. I mean, and so if we're not attentive to that, then we're going to lose people. But if we are attentive to that, you know, I think that, that you start to see, um, kind of like that, that it opens up a pathway for, for people to come to class consciousness and to build solidarity with each other. And, and what I try to do with the show is, is to show that it can be as simple as just talking to people. Right. It can be as yeah. simple as just going to your fellow workers, sitting down, not having an ask, not putting them on edge, thinking that you're going to, you know, ask them for something, but just listen to them. Just just acknowledge them as a person and and get to know them and, and you know, listen to what they're willing to to share and try to find kind of ways to talk to them about about that. Right. And and I think that um you know, you develop a, a kind of certain sense of of what human relationships can and should be uh, if they're not defined by the kind of, you know, just gross, wasteful and alienating um, kind of incentive structures of, of late capitalism. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's I actually think that that's 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 a really that's a really wonderful way of putting it. And I think this. The value of not just uh, not just listening, but like creating that space and that platform to just allow people to talk, to to let people tell the story, and in so doing, you actually get the people who are kind of listening to that to recognize that really, though we're told that this is maybe a bit counterintuitive, but I think it's sort of true that we think. Uh, our stories, our experiences are so incredibly unique, and in a way they are, but something that I've always thought is that like we don't have uh, solidarity with one another, class consciousness is not built with one another uh, in spite of the differences, but because of those differences, right? We've all been through different uh, traumatic nightmares of, of living under capital, but it's because of capitalism, right? So even in those differences, even in that kind of plurality of experience, there can be the space for solidarity, not because we've all had to deal with so many different things, but precisely, not in spite of that, but precisely because our, our experiences are so different, so divergent. That's where there can be common ground. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I guess um, one thing that um, to piggyback onto that is that in, in, it's also really important as an organizing strategy, right? Because I think yeah. that, um, you know, to, to your point, John, about, um, 
kind of how we are are taught to think of ourselves as as kind of having such singular unique experiences um that we're almost uh, that it that it's almost impossible um to kind of communicate those or connect with other people um through them right i mean that i mean yeah it's true and it isn't right i mean like no one is no one is has had the experiences the exact experiences that you have um but there is so much in the experiencing itself of the world that we share that connects us and thinking about that in terms of organizing right and in terms of you know left politics right you know i mentioned that um you know one of the one of the big problems is that we relate to each other we define our our relationships to friends, neighbors, coworkers, you know, based on the kinds of preset um, pathways that that um, that that exist under you know late capitalism, right? The, these sorts of relationships that are kind of always urging us to to think about what we can get from one another, or how much we are willing to or able to share with them, or or what purpose there would be in sharing anything with them right i mean these and these again we operate on the kinds of uh default settings of the world that we're a part of but those default settings are not there you know to produce in us any sort of challenge to that world right and so you know that's why we have to be very mindful about how they work us over right how these sorts of you know um relational structures and how the kind of the habitus of of um you know socializing under late capitalism right is not built it's like it's like a maze without an exit point right i mean it's not built to to allow you to find a way to dismantle the very system that set um those sorts of relationships up in the first place right and so we have to do the work of of building them and repairing them you know together and what comes with that is a greater realization that you know no no one is going to be the savior of of the rest of us right i mean it's not about you know individuals um with you know singularly unique thoughts um and theories and and proclamations who are going to guide this movement Right. And I think that, you know, nowhere is that clearer, you know, than in the kind of, you know, labor movements of the past, you know, two years. Right. I mean, these are movements that have predominantly been led by women and by women of color um, because they are taking place in like education. Right. Like uh, the teacher strikes, the grad student strikes. Um, you know, the, the, these are these are jobs that are traditionally um, dominated by women and by women of color. And they're, you know. And and there is a kind of, um, you know, th th there is something there that that shows you, you know, like kind of what organizational kind of structures look like when you you break out of kind of the the old modes of of looking for leaders or vanguards. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not advocating kind of like complete hor horizontalism. You know, I think that we also we always have to have structure, and everyone has their strengths, and we should play to those strengths. But I guess what I'm saying is that. You know, in doing this show and in just I think anyone who who is forced to, you know, kind of organize in some capacity, you realize very quickly that you got to learn how to share. Right. You got to learn how to listen. <laughs> right. If yeah. you don't, if you don't, then you become one of those fucking dude bros that everybody hates because you just think that that the one problem with this organization is that no one's listening to me. Right. Um. So so don't be that guy. Right. But, um, you know, one of the things that that um 
you know, I could say as a writer and Ash, you were saying this, like, you know, as podcasters, right? Our job is to talk, right? Our job is to synthesize. Our job is to write out, you know, what, what others may be thinking or, or try to connect thoughts that others haven't connected yet. Right. I mean, that's, that's what we get paid for. Right. But you can, you can start to internalize that as you being the only one who can do that. Right. Or, you know, you know, you start to um, you start to mistake your access to these megaphones as kind of your right to them. Right. And 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 that's that's an incredibly important thing to break uh, an incredibly bad thing to break yourself out of. Right. And and honestly, like doing this podcast has really um, I think it's really helped me learn that in the way that that organizing, you know, or just going to other meetings and watching others do the organizing, right? It, that's really helped me realize that, like, you know, if I'm sitting there with shaking, I'm like, why isn't anyone making this point? And then someone makes the point in the Q and A, and I'm like, oh, maybe I wasn't the only one thinking that this was a problem, right? You know, you, it's very humbling. You know, because suddenly you lose this kind of notion that you are, you know, coming down from from Mount Sinai with the the blessed knowledge that that the rest of the plebs can't see. Right. But it's also really energizing. It takes a lot of, you know, weight off you to, you know, because it, you know, it can it can feel very burdensome to feel like, you know, if you get locked in that sort of Twitter isolation um, vacuum where you like you're like, I'm the only one with the best thoughts and everyone needs to hear them or I, I need to say them before someone else does. Right. You know, again, that 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 is a, a kind of incentive structure that is not put in place for your benefit or our collective benefit. So I think it's the, the point that I want to make is that we shouldn't be defining success as an organizer or as a quote unquote influencer or whatever, right? We should not be defining success in those realms by the kind of uh, preset um, incentive structures of what are ultimately capitalist enterprises like Twitter, like Facebook, social media in general, what Jody Dean calls communicative capitalism, right? Which is just just the the incentives and, and drives of capitalism made manifest in the digital world, Right. You know, you, we're all falling over each other to be to get the blue check mark under our name or to get the most Twitter followers or shares or whatever. And we see the success of like our, our comrades podcast as like a zero sum thing. That means that we are losing that success if they get it right. We, we I mean, we think like very loyal capitalists in this kind of system and 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 we need to not do that. Right. And And I think that you know organizing and and the people the the just thousands and thousands of people who do the daily grunt work that doesn't get shared on social media or that doesn't get articles written about it you know in in the Washington Post or New York Times right i mean like th this is where i think i find you know the greatest hope right that that a that people do this without kind of feeling like they need to be recognized for it or that that sort of recognition um is why they do it Right. And B, I think it just really it really reassures you of the the genius of the collective. Right. It reassures you that um, that we are all stronger together. Right. And that um, that 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 you should have more faith in people to reach the kinds of conclusions that you think they should. And you should have faith in yourself to be open enough to reach conclusions that that you haven't yet thought of. Right. And and that's what I think I really come away with from the show is that 
it's taught me to go from like the the writer um perspective where it's my voice my authority kind of guiding readers through an article to just me listening right to just me asking kind of occasional questions and just giving the mic over to other workers and and you know i think a lot of people have written they're like wow i didn't know you know workers were so smart or that they thought this way i was like yeah because you never fucking talked to them Right. <laughs> and it's like and that's the problem. Right. Is you you can get locked into that sort of masculine, like hyper masculine individualist, uh, you know, dude bro logic of everyone's stupid and, and they need to hear what I say. The best way to do that is to just cut off all ties to other people. Right. Because then you can convince yourself of it all day long. But if you start talking to people, if you start operating on the kind of faith that allows you to let the conversation go where it will and to not try to guide it towards the ends that you think it needs to be guided towards. You know, I, I found every every time, every time that it goes somewhere that I'm always happy it it, it went. Right? I always learn yeah. something. I always end up thinking or it goes to exactly where I hoped it would without me pushing it there, which then reminds me that I'm not alone in thinking this. Right? And so so I know that 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 was a a very kind of stream of consciousness kind of long rant, but I guess it all kind of comes down to have faith in people and express that faith by just talking to them, working with them, not, not um, kind of trying to take control of everything. And I think that that, um, that is something that organizing teaches you. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. And I, I really like that, how you phrase that, you know, like, like solidarity doesn't, it doesn't start with the process outcome, right? It doesn't start with attempting to, uh, you know, radicalize everyone. It starts with, you know, actual human connections. Yeah. There's, a, there's this great story that, that um, I think it's David Harvey tells in, in his introduction to Marx's Capital, where he talks about trying to teach it uh, to various groups of people. And he said, like, you know, people who come from maybe uh, working class backgrounds from poor backgrounds, people who've been incarcerated, people who uh, have had to kind of really struggle. You you start talking about Marx's capital, and they'll just go, "Yeah, this is all obvious. Why 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 are you telling me? What? Yeah, obvi obviously society is divided. Yeah, this like who doesn't know this? Whereas it's people who who actually come from sort of like more professional, bourgeois, successful backgrounds who actually really struggle." to accept the truth of something like that. So I think that point about having some kind of humility and being able to go, you know what, that I, probably ca I probably can't tell you something that you don't already know in some sense. But, but what I can do is I can sit here and I can listen and I can, and I can learn from you is a much more productive way of trying to kind of uh, build so solidarity, building class consciousness between people. It is. And it's also um, I think it's it's a way of being kind to yourself. Right. I mean, because yeah. every I mean, everyone, you know, everyone knows that this is this is a marathon. Right. I mean, like, you know, we have a long, long way to go and burnout is a real thing and you will burn out way more quickly if you are constantly convincing yourself um, that that the way that you are going to contribute the way that you have to contribute, right, is to kind of be like, you know, uh, steering the ideological ship in the right direction 
uh, when we're all sailing through a kind of like, you know, just fucking tumultuous news flow that moves a mile a minute, right? You will, you will just feel so exhausted trying to kind of, yeah, like, uh, shape the discourse like every week in and week out when the discourse will go whatever fucking direction it, it wants to, right? Or, you know, you will, you will burn out or you feel like you have to constantly be the one to to make these points or to um, get the kind of a, bring the kind of attention to to these struggles that um, that you feel like others aren't doing. And because I feel like half the time it's just because uh, of our own willful blindness. Right. Half the time when I read articles that are just like, why is no one talking about X? I can just say it's because you haven't looked hard enough. Right. Because people. Yeah. People. People are talking about this. People have been talking about this. People have been organizing about this. What you're saying is, why is no one in Jacobin talking about this? Why is no one in <laughs> Why is no one yeah. in the Washington Post, or why is no one in my algorithmically sorted echo chamber mentioning this? And it's like, well, you know, I hate to say, I hate to tell you, dude, but you know, like the world is bigger than what you can see, right? I mean, and and you you have to do the work to kind of find those things. And I think, imagine how much more healthy, right, our discourse would be if every time someone had the impulse to you know shout at the rooftops why is no one talking about this why am i the first one to make this point if instead of instead of rushing to twitter or facebook or whatever to make that point if there was something in your brain that said i want to try to find you know who's working on this or why don't i pose it as a question right can people point me to this direction right because again it it's really important for your own stamina it gives you faith in people it shows you that there's so much going on and that you are not going to be the one to save everybody and that you shouldn't have to be and you shouldn't want to be right that that you know no one has to do everything but everyone has to do something and we should be doing everything in our power to raise up the voices and efforts of others, right? I think that that is the impulse that I really, really hope, um, you know, like all of our different left uh, media operations, I hope we make that jump. And I think we're starting to, right, where we understand that we're not all competing in a vacuum, right, and that we shouldn't feel like we're competing at all, right? But instead, we should be seeing ourselves as part of a kind of collaborative movement to raise class consciousness, to build solidarity, not only in our like media producing groups, but in our listenerships and our readers, we should be bringing people in conversation with each other. We should be, you know, putting as many hyperlinks to other people's great work in our articles as we can, or we should be plugging each other's shows on our shows, right? We should be, I don't know. I don't, I, I just, Again, I think that that's not only good praxis. I think it's not only um, kind of like a show of solidarity in itself. But I also think that, you know, it is it is necessary for us to kind of become the sorts of people who can who can withstand the the the, the fight that's going to take a lifetime. Yeah, I, I mean, I could not agree with that more. And, and like like this is this is. Part of the effect that that our greater capitalist system has on us, right, is that even even while we are, you know, trying to push society forward in, in a more like broadly left or socialist direction, however you want to phrase that, you know, like we we still have like this imaginative capitalistic space where we view ourselves as like almost almost like Randian superheroes in a certain sense, where where it's like, okay, we are going to be the one to have the take, and our take will be the take. Yeah. That goes yeah. viral and starts this fucking revolution already. 
you know, like like me popping off about some stupid movie is going to be it. When in reality, it's it, it, it could never be that. It has to be this concert, this greater connection of people. This, you know, like like you know, any any kind of movement worth having is is constitutive of all the people in it, and not like giant figureheads. I mean, there's so much work done on kind of the the ideological politics of neoliberalism that turns every interaction into that zero sum game, which is like, oh, if something good has happened to you that must mean that this is bad for me. And I think trying to unlearn that, trying to pick that out of our kind of political practice is something that's really hard to do because I don't think we really kind of uh, appreciate just how far that has sunk into the kind of logic of of nearly every interaction that we, we kind of go through. And it's especially kind of tempting for people who are maybe existing in kind of precarious cultural industries like being freelance writers or being podcasters because, you know, you're, to- you're told you co- have to constantly be hustling, you have to be pitching, you have to be, you have to be on that grind because that's the only way that you're going to be successful. And I think it is something that is, it's so personally freeing when you kind of take the steps of starting to step out of that and go, you know what, I'm not in competition with these people. You know, just because they got their pitch accepted, a kind of a place that pays really well, it's not does not mean that I have lost. And I think that 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 frees that frees people from the kind of stresses and and pressures of it, and it also reduces the role that ego plays in any kind of left culture that's happening online. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that was um, beautifully put, both of you, and and I guess to. Um, kind of maybe add a, a offer a final thought to that, right? Is that, <clears throat> um, it's, it's, I, I, I guess if you, you know, kind of try to, uh, thread everything that, that we've been talking about here, right? It's that, um, you know, the, the, the point that I want to kind of, um, you know, add to that is that it's, it's, it's as much what you do as what you say, right? I know it's incredibly cliche, but like I could write, a million articles about um, showing solidarity and why that's important. But if, um, if, you know, you know, comrades DM me asking if they can, if I can introduce them to an editor and I say, fuck off, what good is that? I mean, what, what good is my word? I know I can, I, you know, we all know a bunch of the like left Twitter celebrities who are just really fucking shitty human beings in real life and who, who want to kind of, you know, have this, um, this public persona is kind of the great benefactor, you know, like of the left, but who are realistically just, you know, like very, uh, power hungry, attention seeking shitheads. And, and, you know, again, I, like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to battle with that person. I don't want to stand side by side with that person right i mean but i want to i want to know more and i want to do more and i want to be more for the people who 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 help me in ways that that no one else ever sees right in ways that 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 don't have like you know 20,000 retweets attached to it right in in yeah, the yeah. yeah just to you know and so i think you know, in terms of, of um, kind of, again, getting out of this kind of uh, hyper-masculine um, individualist notion of of organizing, right? I mean, it, it, you know, that it's it's the way that you build relationships. It's the way that you are, show that you're there for each other and that you you try to lift each other up. Right. I mean, like that, I think, is the is is the salve for, you know, the stuff that just makes you so 
um, you know, sick and, and depressed about um, like if you only see uh, kind of, you know, organizing through the lens of Twitter or social media in general, you're going to get very depressed very quickly and you're going to see everything as a zero sum game. But that doesn't mean yeah, that's. Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that's the only way for, you know, us to operate via Twitter, right? It just means that those are the presets of the medium, right? And we have to be doing more um, to kind of rewire those and to recode them for our own ends. Like the three of us have never met in person, right? But we had, we are now, you know, having this great conversation. Um, you know, we are now, you know, friends and and, you know, show up for each other. Right. And, and that's 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 great. Right. I mean, it, I think it's something that, again, it binds that sort of um, kind of radical rejection of the reality that we're living in and this radical dissatisfaction with um, kind of the rig system that we're all a part of. It binds it to kind of a real genuine human feeling of connection and solidarity that that we have the capacity to f- to foster that we have the capacity to grow if we just make that our our primary concern right and we can do that not only just by helping each other whenever we can or trying to point each other to others who can help and trying to bring more and more people into that community of helpers and 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 of listeners and of people who are just there to to show you that you're not alone right but we can also try to model that in in the media that we produce Right. Astra Taylor had a great um, line about this when I when I had her on Working People recently, um, where she was just like, yeah, you, you, you have to kind of try to um, not only give the mic to other people, but you have to try to kind of model um, a certain form of, of care and, and a certain other kind of sociality um, that 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 people can feel invited to. Right. That that, um, you know, because because, again, like people can be activated through culture right they can be they can be brought together through horror films or podcasts or something you know but you it's that won't happen on its own right we have to be active in that process and so i think that you know if we model for our listeners not only like a kind of way of discussing and sharing and opening up to each other that they can feel like they're a part of and that they can model themselves in their daily lives but if we also open up our media to other people, right? If we bring, you know, like, like I had a listener call in to the show who, you know, has a, he's like a, you know, he's a quiet person. Um, and he wanted to share that, like, you know, he'd been listening to the show and he, he stood up to his boss when his boss wanted him to work, uh, after he clocked out. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, yeah, th- I mean, that, that's, that's incredible. And, and I wanted, and I put, you know, like his story on the show, but I'm like, you know, like that, that I think that's that's a way that we can actually try to um, recode the kind of, uh, you know, gross presets of the media that we're operating within to kind of bring people yeah, closer to that sense of real human uh, solidarity. That That was beautifully yeah. put. Thank you for saying that. so so we're we're Um, we're just about hitting the hour mark here which is usually where we start to wrap things up although like there are thousands of places we could take this conversation that would be incredibly rewarding to go down i think we could do another i think we could do another hour easy but um ash i was thinking maybe we could jump down to that uh question on like 
being a kind of radical yeah, academic, yeah. being surprised yeah. at, maybe that would be a good place to sort of start to bring things to a to a good wrapping up point, and then we can finish with some chat about some spooky chat. Spooky <laughs> chat. <laughs> Cool and yeah, and we can we can have part two of the uh, of the convo for uh, working. Oh people. hell yeah! Yeah, um, when you guys yeah when you guys aren't App. recording like eight podcasts in one weekend, <laughs> yeah. that would be incredible. That we'll yeah, make definitely. that happen. Hell yeah! So um, so yeah so well uh, so the, the three of us are academics in in varying stages of our academic career currently. Uh, we're also we're also uh, engaged in radical politics. And that comes with its own very precarious territory, you know, especially here in the States. It's very difficult to, to be radically active and be in academia and kind of it's a tightrope act. So kind of Max, what are, what, what's, what's your experience been like in this space? And I know a lot of our listeners um, on Horror Vanguard are current academics, so they're looking to get into graduate school and pursue um, MAs and PhDs. What would you kind of say to people who who don't want to drop their radical politics for the sake of higher ed, but are also really worried about navigating that space. Yeah, it's um, it's a great question, and and um, it's a, it's a it's a constant learning process for sure. So I mean, I'll there there um <clears throat> there um there are two things that that kind of immediately come to mind, right? Because um, you know, I. I I mean, I get I get asked um, all the time from, you know, new grad students or even like, you know, faculty here, um, you know, everyone's getting into to public scholarship now. And so uh, they keep hitting me up, asking me for, for advice or if I'll go talk at this one thing. <laughs> and then but I think they stopped inviting me because they realized I just kept shitting in the punch bowl every time I went. Um, <laughs> uh. <laughs> but um you know the 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 two things that that I say um or I guess maybe three is um you know one I think it's really important um especially for people going into grad school to realize that you actually have way more freedom and power than you are led to believe right because everyone's going to tell you that like yeah just wait until you get tenure then you can rock the boat Right. Then you can then you can start, you know, going out there, publishing articles and making waves. What they don't tell you is that, again, like we were saying before, people are not so static. Right. People are they we become who we are, you know, in conversation with the worlds that we inhabit. Right. And so if you were inhabiting a thoroughly neoliberalized um, kind of uh, uh, structure of higher education today, Right. You by the time you um, by the time you uh, are at a place where you can change the system in academia, you would no longer be the kind of person who would want to. Right. And that's the yeah. story, I think, of so many people who have tenure or who who are in the administration is that, you know, they become products of it. They become way less willing to um, kind of challenge the very thing that their livelihoods and, and careers and, and reputations depend on. Right. And that's, you know, I, I don't mean that to sound like, you know, just a, like, you know, all tenured professors are reactionaries, but I'm, it's just acknowledging that that this is who we are. This is how people operate. And this is kind of the logical end point of of trying to kid yourself into thinking that um you know 10 years of slavishly you know sucking up to your superiors in, in the hopes of getting tenure 
is going to, you know, end up with you being the kind of person who's going to want to like challenge them, you know, on the, the neoliberal structure of the institution, right? It's just the odds are not in in your favor that that's going to happen. Right. And so what I try to tell graduate students is that, look, no one gives a shit about you, right? Like, you know, you are a number (laughs) at this point, right? You are, you are a warm body to teach a class that they do not want, um, you know, professors teaching anymore and that they just hope like, you know, grad students can, can fill the load. Um, and that actually can be very freeing, right? Cause it can give you a lot more, um, it can give you a lot more of a license to, to say what you want and to, um, you know, work with your, your fellow, um, workers in grad school and in other programs, right. To, um, to build that solidarity and to challenge the university on its own turf. Right. I think that, that, and, and that's kind of the, that's the big, um, you know, a uh, trick that that grad school plays on us, right? Is it tries to convince us as much as possible to wait until we're on the other side to to change things, only to realize that the other side is a cliff, right? And and but once you know, if you can if you can tell people like, hey, there's a there's a cliff coming up. You should if you got something to say, say it now, right? You know, then yeah. then you know, I think <laughs> you get things like the U Chicago strike. You get people realizing that you know that that they actually have quite a lot of power, right? You know, I I said in a in a Baffler article a, a while ago is that you know universities, especially private universities like my alma mater, U Chicago, with whom I am just endlessly disgusted that they won't recognize the graduate student union, right? They're trying to argue that what graduate students do isn't work and therefore graduate students are not workers. And I'm like, okay, there's a very easy way to test this. If it's not work, don't do it. And let's see how the university uh, operates, right? <laughs> you know, like, but the university has become addicted to this kind of cheap labor. And and so, again, I think it's, it, it's that kind of labor organizing question of realizing that, you know, if you put your hands in your pockets, uh, you'll see how much the university depends on you. You'll see yeah. how much kind of power and sway you have. And the fact that, you know, the job market is so shit. <clears throat> and things are so uncertain and you know everyone is kind of buried under kind of an endless stream of new you know papers and whatnot you know why not take your shot right why not you know like um publish organize unionize you know like you know what do you got to lose because it's only going to get worse the higher up you know you try to go right and and so that's that's one really big thing i would say for graduate students who are, who want to get into um you know kind of political activism during grad school is that don't wait you know you you are not going to have another time where you have as much time to read and think and work with you know like people who are in the same kind of boat you know it's actually it can be a very terrible and stressful time but it also it provides what a lot of tenured professors wish they still had and so don't take it for granted. Use it to your advantage while you can. Um, the the second thing would be, um, you know, this this is, uh, I guess, point two and three are kind of, uh, you know, sewn together. But, you know, there's there's a lot of talk right now about the value of public scholarship, <clears throat> right? And, you know, a lot of a lot of people in higher education are kind of seeing the writing on the wall. They're recognizing that most published articles in academic journals will be read by like less than four people. And, you know, and that also, you know, a person's um, kind of profile uh, is not separate from kind of their public clout, you know, in which they can, you know, uh, you can get more public clout by um, doing public scholarship, by being 
you know, a, a public scholar on Twitter or in the, you know, um, kind of organizing your community and stuff like that. And so, you know, universities are not, you know, the people running these universities are not dumb. They want in on this. And so, you know, I'm seeing now as I'm getting ready to leave grad school that a lot of, um, you know, program directors are trying to get, um, you know, professors and grad students to get their students to write op-eds instead of essays or five paragraph essays. And, <clears throat> you know, it's like, it's this great thing if the, if these undergrads get one of the op-eds published, but what I'm, my first question is like, do they get paid for that? And most of the time the answer yeah, is no. Yeah. And I'm like, then what the, what the hell is your problem? Like, <clears throat> um, you know, to anyone listening who is considering getting into kind of public scholarship in the realm of like writing or, or podcasting or whatever, right? Don't undervalue yourself because the university already undervalues you enough as it is, right? Um, and also, you, again, you have to think about yourself not as an island, right? It is not a, a coincidence that at the same time universities are are pushing kind of everyone to write op-eds for free, that newsrooms are firing people left and right, right? You know, that, that, that they're trying to union bust when, when newsrooms try to organize, right? I mean, like academics have always had a big problem of thinking of thinking of themselves as somehow occupying a world apart from, from the communities that, that they, um, they exist within and they don't, right? Your, your actions have impact other people, right? So don't be a yeah. scab. Don't write for free. Don't, um, don't, don't, you know, like take money out of, uh, other writers pockets. Cause you don't be a form of wage suppression or don't be a willing kind of participant in that wage suppression. Right. So see yourself as part of kind of a, a larger community of workers and, and quote unquote content producers and, and realize that, you know, you will all be taken advantage of individually if you do not kind of think and work and act um, collectively. And so I would say yeah. look at things like the IWW Freelance Union, you know, that people are trying to kind of join. Right. Look at the the unionization efforts that have been successful. There's the box, you know, union, the vice union, um, you know, take those as as examples, learn from them, reach out to other people. Um, but don't, you know, don't get don't get swept up in this kind of idea that public scholarship and this leads me to my third point. Don't believe that public scholarship is just, um, you know, I think the thing that pisses me off the most is that um, most of the time universities talk about public scholarship as just another subject. As just um yeah like another another thing another you know column on your CV, and and so academics end up thinking about it as just like you know a uh, uh, a way to translate their work into a different idiom right or publish it in a different venue right but they that's not it right that's because if you know it, the 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 neoliberal university system is fundamentally and ideologically and materially anti public. And so if you are not – if your scholarship is not challenging that arrangement, then it is not public scholarship, right? It is, it is still part and parcel of kind of the, the you know, content factory that neoliberalized higher education institutions have become, right? And so you need to be challenging that arrangement. And thus, the very notion of public scholarship isn't, isn't taking what you write in your book and trying to kind of fluff it up with some like regular person language, you know, and, and, and doing that for free, you know, or for like 50 bucks a pop, like it should 
force you to rethink the very nature of what scholarship is and and how you produce it, um, who it's for, who it's serving, and who and what is is um, is 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 influencing it, right? Who is is shaping it, right? I mean, a, a public scholarly space is one that that is almost kind of radically antithetical to the neoliberalized scholarly space. And if people don't take that seriously and think long and hard about what that means for like them as an author, them as a researcher, them as a community participant, right, then they're just going to end up reinscribing the same relations of, of neoliberalism that are written into higher education today. Yeah, amazingly well put. Yeah, I could I could not agree with all of that uh, any stronger. That that is fantastically said. To 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 add something to that uh, to a UK from a UK point of view, if you are if you are a grad student who um, teaches in higher education in the UK, you can you can join uh, UCU, the University and Colleges Union, for free. There is no there is no financial barrier to, to joining a trade union, to, to being unionized, and to, I just want to reiterate, I want to say again something that Max just said, which is stop working for free. Like, stop stop working for free. The amount that, that grad students particularly are expected to do in terms of volunteering or in terms of, oh, this will look really good on your CV, is uh, is just mind-blowing. So, so and it's a devaluing of not just your labor, but of the concept of, of labor generally in a gra- from a grad student. So it isn't just taking money out of your pocket. It's taking money out of the pocket of the next person who joins your program, who tries to do the same thing that you're trying to do. I think that's something that's really, really... That just one practical thing that I think could make a kind of material difference to a lot of people is a refusal to stop to, to, to work for free. Yeah, yeah. And if, if, if I could add anything to that, I, w- I would say definitely don't don't rely on the machinery your university has has in place for any kind of support at any moment. You know, like they will they will pull the rug out from under you before you even know you're standing on it. You know, re- rely on yep. your peers, you know, rely on your fellow graduate students, uh, rely on your fellow TAs, rely on your fellow ECRs. You know, like th- those are the people who are in it with you. You know, the people, the people above you may be very good. They may be very helpful. They may be supportive. They may be even comrades. But, but you know, like at, at the end of the day, like they're part of that machinery. So, so we are we we have to band together and not kind of rely on the good graces of these, uh, you know, inst- ed- educational institutions and giant scare quotes that have been heavily absorbed into capitalist machinery. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Hell yeah. Um, the, the neoliberal uh, to, to put this in, uh, to, uh, I really like the a colleague of mine put it this way. They said, "Like the contemporary neoliberal university, the university as such is a hostile institution." Now that doesn't that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and be a part of one, but you should recognize it for what it is. Um, it is a hostile institution, and so you need to form relationships which are going to help you to to not just survive but thrive. And those are going to be relationships which possibly are not sanctioned by the official mechanisms of the of the, of the university. And I think in everything that you've said, uh, Max has been some incredible insight. It's been it's been uh, really inspiring to listen to you talk. It's been full full of really really good advice. Uh, so thank you so much for for all of that. 
uh, knowledge and insight that you've just dropped. Uh, thanks so much, guys, and keep doing the great work. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, yeah. If we could, if we could close out with one thing, uh, there is there is one one last official line of business uh, uh, before before we can uh, free you back to back to your life. Um, Back to the back to the grocery store right. before we summoned you here. Right, I got a shopping yeah. cart. <laughs> so, uh, so as we like to we like to close this out. You know, we were we are a horror media, like you know, media criticism podcast, right? Who who you got? Like you know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Gogol uh, earlier, which really excited me because the nose is is one of my favorite bits of Russian fiction, and I love Gogol the Hell beginning. Yeah. If you've never seen the movie. It is ludicrous, and I highly recommend it. But but uh, what what else do you got from the horror world? Like you know what what has had a huge impact on you? What do you like? Anything you're currently into? Hmm. Um. Well, um. I would say I guess maybe in the the Russian literature vein, um. You know, Gogol also has like a, he when he started writing, he would do a lot of um. You know, he he, he was very in, influenced by kind of um. You know, old Russian folklore. Um, and so some of his older, uh, stories are very much kind of weird and tied into kind of like, yeah, like witches on the, on the countryside at, at midnight. Um, but, uh, I think another one that, um, you know, in, in that vein that has always inspired me is, um, is Master and Margarita by Bulgakov. Um, yeah. and, and I, I think, I think Bulgakov, uh, as a kind of science fiction and, and with a lot of elements of horror, um, just does a, I think he shows incredibly well, um, kind of how horror had to take, to paraphrase you guys is a political diagnostic. Right. And but also how it can be um, politically effective. Right. How it can be a kind of um, political, um, I don't know, force, because you're almost rooting for like the the bad guys in Master and Margarita. Like they are they're they're showing uh, the, the, the absurdity and kind of the human rot at the center of um, kind of a planned society that um, that I think is, is really powerful uh, reading reading it now from a political perspective. But, you know, I think, um, honestly, if I, if I, I know this is, this, uh, may be lame, but uh, my brothers and I have been talking about it obsessively because we grew up with this, right? And so, you know, my, my oldest brother, Jesse, and I, um, you know, we're not, he, he's just a different person than, than I am. And, and there was always kind of enough of an age gap that, you know, we were always into different things at different times. I mean, the one thing that, that all of us had was like basketball. We would all play together. And I, and, but you know, like there were, there were a lot of times where uh, it was harder for us to kind of find common interests. But the thing that, that always stands out to me um, and the, a memory that I cherish and that will always make me feel closer to my brother is that every month we knew the week. It was like the second week of the month we would go to, you know, a brick and mortar bookstore that no longer exists because the new Goosebumps. Oh, was hell out. yeah. And. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we would rush to see what the new cover looked like. We would grab it. We would run to the front, buy it, go home and just like devour them. And and we read all of them together. Um, and I mean, just God, I can't even remember how many. But like that was a period like where Goosebumps and the scary stories to tell in the dark series with the just the incredible illustrations that I have to say, you know, this is what I said. Uh, we've been talking obsessively about it. We saw the new trailer for the Guillermo del Toro movie. Uh, and I think it looks. Oh, yeah, awesome. I'm really excited. <laughs> like I'm. Uh, 
I am so jazzed about it because because uh, I was like, if it's if they take their inspiration from the illustrations, that it, then it's gonna be good, and that's exactly what it looks like they're doing. So you know, those illustrations, they I don't know. There's something about them in in conversation with. You know, this time in my life where I was just reading um, Goosebumps all the time, where I was kind of, you know, through R.L. Stein, I was just kind of imagining the 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 kind of weird forces and and um, things that would lurk behind the the kind of you know prim facade of of Southern Californian sprawl, right? The kind of dark uh, worlds that that you know, behind the, the facade of suburban houses, right? Or the kind of blank uh, building faces. Um, you know, they, they I think R.L. Stein really helped me kind of think about the weird underworld of the normal um, in that sort of kind of setting. And the scary stories to tell in the dark really uh, injected kind of how dark and weird that world could, a, a vision of how dark and weird that world could be. Um, and, and, um, kind of how limitless, um, you know, our imaginations could be in, in, um, you know, trying to, to understand it. Um, and, and I think those two things together really, really shaped, um, I guess, uh, they, they really kind of have a through line connecting my young self to that, that, um, older self who was so influenced by writers like Gogol and, Bulgakov and McCullers uh, to kind of see um, and and think harder about um, yeah what what the underneath of reality really means for us and and um, kind of how um, important that is um, in terms of shaping the ways that we that we think about our lives and and how we treat each other and how we understand the world that that we live in and what we're afraid of and what we're not. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a that's such a good recommend. We're gonna have to do an episode on Goosebumps. Oh uh, yeah, probably. yeah. Oh my god, please do that, <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go- Goosebumps. Are you afraid um, of the dark? Scary stories to tell in the dark. You know, like like that that wave yes. of like nineties horror aimed at like slightly older children was just fantastic. I loved that stuff. Yeah, it's probably why we're all uh, no, so weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to chalk it up to that, too. It, it was definitely that and totally not anything else that ever happened. Right. It's like when, when uh, like, Generation Z, they're like, why are you so weird? I was like, man, have you ever seen Ren and Stimpy? Right. Like, you know, go 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 watch that shit. Yeah, and then uh, come ask me that question, right? Or go go look at those because now they redid the illustrations for the scary yeah. stories to tell in the dark, and they suck. Right, uh, and I was like, "Yeah, for a re-release, they toned them down." Yeah, a lot. And so I'm like, "Go back and look at the original ones." Then ask me why I still wake up screaming <laughs> as, as a 30 year old. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades, and remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.